Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, I Am Asking. It is based upon the lectionary readings for May 13, 2018. One of the ironies of my spiritual life is that I have had a hard time seeing the Jesus of the Gospels as tender and vulnerable. Have I always professed belief in a tender-hearted Jesus? Yes. Have I always understood intellectually that Jesus was an empathetic man? Yes. But I've also spent much of my life reading the New Testament and finding the Jesus in its pages austere and dispassionate. Though I try to read between the lines and see Jesus' full humanity in the Gospel accounts, he often strikes me as disturbingly single-minded, so sure of himself, his God, and his mission, that he doesn't seem to experience the vulnerable-making emotions that follow from love, uncertainty, anxiety, dread, and helplessness. Did Jesus ever fear for his loved ones? Did he ever doubt or backtrack on their behalf? When he asked his closest friends to take up their crosses and follow him, did he shudder at the thought of what those crosses would cost them? The answer to each of these questions is surely yes, but the distance from my brain to my heart, the journey from knowing cognitively to trusting spiritually is a long one. So I'm always grateful when a gospel passage bridges that distance, when both scripture's familiarity and my jadedness fall away, and the good news of who Jesus actually is catches me by surprise. This week's reading from John's Gospel did that with just three words, I am asking. For the seventh Sunday after Easter, the Revised Common Lectionary gives us a portion of Jesus' high priestly prayer, the culmination of his farewell discourse to his disciples. The setting is the upper room on Monday Thursday. Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet, foreseen Judas' betrayal, predicted Jesus' denial, predicted Peter's denial, promised his disciples the Holy Spirit, and taught them as if time is running out, which it is. In the final moments before his arrest, he looks toward heaven and prays. I've heard some people call the high priestly prayer the other Lord's Prayer, the one we don't memorize and recite on Sunday mornings. It's certainly not polished and poetic like the Our Father. He doesn't flow or cover his bases with anything like efficiency. It's long, rambling, and rather hard to follow. And though the disciples are meant to overhear the words, Jesus' tone has an urgency and passion to it that is achingly private. Jesus is not engaging in a teaching moment with this Lord's Prayer. He's rending his heart. In preparation for writing this essay, I sat with the words of the lection for a long time, waiting to see what words or phrases would stand out. I did not expect the magic words to be, I am asking. But those are the words that stopped me short and brought tears to my eyes. Suddenly, I heard them the strained and heartbreaking vulnerability of them. Jesus spent his final moments with his friends in humble, anxious supplication. Jesus ends his ministry by asking into uncertainty, hoping into doubt, trusting into danger. In an outpouring of words and emotions, Jesus asks God to do for his friends what he himself can no longer do, to be for them in spirit what he can no longer be for them in body. Protect them, Jesus prays. Protect them by your name, Protect them from the evil one. Protect them so that they can know unity, joy, and truth. Protect them. Do I know this Jesus, the one who pleads so earnestly? I think I know the Jesus who teaches, heals, resurrects, and feeds. But do I know this one? This vulnerable one who in this passage does the single hardest thing a friend, a lover, a spouse, a parent, a child, a teacher, a pastor ever does. Sends his cherished ones into a treacherous world on nothing but a hope and a prayer entrust the treasures of her heart to the vast mystery that is intercession. I am asking. 
as if to say, I don't know what you will do with my asking. I don't know when or how or if you will answer this prayer. I can't force your hand. But I'm staking my life and the lives of my loved ones on your goodness because there's literally nothing more I can do on my own. I have come to the end of what this aching love of mine can hold and guard and save. I am asking. To wonder what role prayer plays in our world, a world rife with tragedy, injustice, and oppression, is to raise the hardest questions I can think of about God, questions I don't know how to answer. Does God intervene directly in human affairs? Does his intervention or lack of it depend in any way on our asking? Can prayer change God? As has been the case in many areas of my faith life, my beliefs about prayer have changed a lot over the years. I was raised to believe that God intervenes very directly in human affairs and that intercessory prayer has powerful and undeniable real-world effects. As a child, I believed with all my heart that prayer heals diseases, prevents car accidents, feeds hungry children in faraway countries, fends off nightmares, prevents premature death, and stops the bad guys. As a teen and young adult, much of that certainty collapsed under the weight of life experience. Some diseases didn't get better. Car accidents happened. I had nightmares. Babies starved. Young people died. And bad guys won the day. When I asked my elders to explain these discrepancies, they gave me two answers. One, you need to pray with more faith. And two, sometimes God's answer is no. Both answers struck me then and strike me now as lame. Today, I live along the borders of a more complicated world. I have friends and family members who pray for parking spots, lost house keys, little league victories, and Ivy League admissions for their children. But I also have friends who avoid intercessory prayer on principle, convinced that the true purpose of prayer has nothing to do with asking God for stuff. In their words, he's God, not Santa Claus. The challenge of intercessory prayer is that it's subjective. What looks like God's yes in my eyes might easily look like his no, his silence, or even his non-existence in yours. As Barbara Brown Taylor puts it, the meaning we give to what happens in our lives is our final, inviolable freedom. When is an answer to prayer really an answer? When is it coincidence, randomness, a trick of the light? The cost of our liberty, a cost God daily chooses to endure, is that we can't say for sure, not in this lifetime. So why do I pray? One answer is that I pray because I am compelled to do so, because something in me cries out for engagement, relationship, attentiveness, and worship. I pray because my soul yearns for connection with an other who is God, and that connection is best forged in prayer. With words, without words, through laughter, through tears, in hope and in despair, prayer holds open the possibility that I am not alone, and that this broken, aching world isn't alone either. I pray, as C.S. Lewis writes, because I can't help myself, because a need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. That's a reasonable answer, but maybe this week's Gospel reading offers me another one. I pray because Jesus did. I ask because Jesus asked. Asking is the last thing he did before his arrest, the last tender memory he gave his friends. He did not awe them with the grand finale of miracles. Neither did he contemplate their futures in despair. He looked up to heaven with a trembling heart and surrendered his cherished ones to God. Jesus asked because he loved. May we also do likewise. For book reviews this week, Dan reviews Lynching in America, Confronting the Legacy of Racial Terror. On April 26, 2018, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice opened in downtown Montgomery, Alabama, on a six-acre site near the state capitol where American slaves were formerly auctioned for market. Informally known as the Lynching Memorial, the outdoor exhibit commemorates the more than 4,400 documented victims of racial terror 
that were concentrated in 12 southern states from 1877 to 1950. On the same day and near the memorial, the Legacy Museum, from enslavement to mass incarceration, also opened. The $20 million complex was paid for by private funds and was the brainchild of Brian Stevenson, the Harvard-trained attorney, founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, and author of the best-selling book Just Mercy. First published in 2015, this report by the EJI, which includes 351 footnotes and numerous archival photographs, documents its comprehensive historical investigation of lynching in America. The newly opened National Memorial and Legacy Museum fulfilled the report's challenge to move beyond the complicity of silence about the barbaric, sadistic, and systemic violence in our nation's history. Lynching was not just a form of punishment, vigilante justice, or isolated hate crimes. Rather, lynching was a carefully calculated and comprehensively executed form of racial domination and terror. The lynchings were often occupied, accompanied by burning, torture, mutilation, dismemberment, and decapitation. They were not just forms of crime control, as was often claimed, but means of racial control. The report explains how this violent history has shaped virtually every aspect of African American life today, geographical, political, social, educational, and economic. Worse yet, the report draws a direct line from the history of lynching to its contemporary iteration in our criminal justice system, today that has become the central institution for sustaining racial domination and hierarchy in America, mass incarceration, rates of capital punishment, and police abuse. Some lynchings were done in isolated and remote areas by psychopaths, but they were also and often carefully choreographed public events and spectacles that were advertised, described by lurid media headlines, i.e. colored man roasted alive, and attended by thousands of voyeuristic spectators. They were carried out by and celebrated by leading citizens, state and federal congressmen, and leaders in business and church. Our American Christians, wrote the anti-lynching activist Ida B. Wells, are too busy saving the souls of white Christians from burning in hellfire to save the lives of black ones from present burning in fires kindled by white Christians. There was no due process of law in most of these lynchings, nor any attempt to hide the identity of the executioners. The U.S. Postal Service was happy to mail commemorative postcards with pictures of lynchings. Trains provided free services to these spectacles. Yes, there were lone dissenting voices, but far too few. Although the North won the Civil War, the report argues, the South won the narrative war about racial inequality and domination that still haunts us today. Consider, for example, the many hundreds or thousands of public buildings and monuments that celebrate the racist South and the Confederacy, and the precious few memorials to the history of lynching, or to the many brave and articulate activists like Ida B. Wells. Until we publicly acknowledge this legacy of racial terror, as has been done with the Berlin Holocaust Memorial and the Apartheid Museum in Johannesburg, true progress and healing will be very difficult indeed. For more on this subject, see Dan's book review of Without Sanctuary, Lynching Photography in America. For films this week, Dan reviews I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. Ruth is a single 30-something nursing assistant who is depressed. And why not? In the first few scenes of this movie, she rolls her eyes at a monster pickup truck revving its engine and spewing exhaust. A racist patient of hers dies while uttering obscene inanities. She encounters a rude customer at the grocery store and then finds dog poop on her front lawn not once but twice. When burglars ransack her house, and after the cops merely fill out the forms, she said quite enough, and so with the help of an obnoxious and dorky neighbor named Tony, she embarks on a bungling crusade of vigilante justice. This is a darkly comedic and creepy tale that premiered at Sundance, where it won a grand jury prize. 
that about a month later was streamed exclusively on Netflix. It's a Netflix original. One tiny redemptive tidbit amidst the gruesome violence, Ruth finds herself in church two times, and the title of this film is the title of a gospel tune that was covered by the Carter family and also Woody Guthrie, and also sung at the very end of the film. And finally, for poetry this week, Prayer by Thomas A. Kempis. Grant me, O Lord, to know what I ought to know, to love what I ought to love, to praise what delights thee most, to value what is precious in thy sight, to hate what is offensive to thee. Do not suffer me to judge according to the sight of my eyes, nor to pass sentence according to the hearings of the ears of ignorant men, but to discern with a true judgment between things visible and spiritual, and above all, always to inquire what is the good pleasure of thy will. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for May 13th, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.